0: Biology, biology, biology. Hello, and welcome back to another episode of the HSC Biology Podcast. We are finishing off module seven today, which is very exciting. And the remaining few dot points are a little bit tricky in uh, how we need to break them down. But hopefully I have some good examples for you here. Now the first one is an interpret data question. And I always see these dot points as being more or less things that the students will have to decipher in the exam. So having any specific knowledge may not be that useful, but obviously it's uh, best to make sure you do cover all your tracks here. So the dot point we're looking at first is interpret data relating to the incidence and prevalence of infectious disease in populations. For example, mobility of individuals and the portion that are immune or immunized and malaria or dengue fever in Southeast Asia. All right, let's now take a look at the dot point itself. So first of all, it says interpret data, and that means looking at things like graphs and tables and other pieces of information, probably a stimulus. Like I said before, you're going to be given something to interpret in the exam. Now, the next two things it says are relating to the incidence and prevalence. Those are key words and they certainly can test you on them. And another word you can throw in here, not mentioned specifically, but is important, is mortality. And it does come up later in the syllabus as well. So, I usually teach mortality here as well. So... With the dot points underneath, it is a for example. So we're looking at one of either of the points, so mobility of individuals or malaria, but then they've got or dengue fever in Southeast Asia. I don't know why they've put the ore there. They should have given it a new dot point on its own, and I'm not sure why they did that because it's confusing. But we carry on anyway. Let's now look at the incidence, prevalence and mortality definitions and a great example to help you explain this concept in in the classroom is the bathtub analogy or there is an image that you can use that I'll post on my Facebook page that you can check out as well. Now the way this works is that each part of a bathtub, whether it be the water in the tub, whether it be water being turned on and put into the tub, or water leaking out of the tub, they all represent different parts of either incidence, prevalence, and mortality. So we'll start with prevalence, and prevalence is the total amount of people that currently have a disease. And so if we're looking at something like melanoma, 10,000 people might currently have it, and so the prevalence of of melanoma is 10,000, or is 10,000 individuals with the disease. You can think about that as like the water that's already in the bathtub. Okay, that's the set amount of people. Those 10,000 people represent the water that's already in the bathtub. Let's say it's half full. Now, incidents would be like turning a tap on and allowing water to drip in. When that water is dripping in, that's like new people entering or new people that have the disease. So, if um, 100 people got uh, melanoma over a year, that would be added to the prevalence but they would be considered the incidence of that year. So think about turning on the tap as adding new individuals to that population with the disease. Now mortality is when you can imagine that there's either a plug or a hole at the bottom of the bath and you're undoing that plug and those people that uh, do pass away from the disease, whatever it might be, would then be leaving the bathtub. So the bathtub that's half full of water, it would be coming out the bottom. And that's mortality or death. And they're obviously no longer considered in the prevalence list. Um, um, they're now added to the mortality or the death rate. Um There is one other way that an individual can uh, get out of the prevalence category, so that bathtub, and that's through recovery. So they can recover, and that also is uh, representative in the bathtub analogy as like steam leaving. So these people um, have managed to uh, not get the uh, worst case scenario where it does lead to death, they're able to recover, and therefore that prevalence rate will, will change. So... Once again, if you think about the bathtub as the prevalence, the total number of people that have the condition, then the incidence is new people being added or like a tap being turned on and mortality is like people leaving or um, uh, being uh, or, or dying, uh, that water is leaving through the bottom of the bathtub. Recovery is like the steam where the people um, are recovering and therefore that prevalence rate will change in each way. So you've probably heard me say uh, prevalence rate and incidence rate. Uh, mortality rate quite a few times throughout there and sometimes I do use it incorrectly and interchangeably with incidence prevalence and mortality but you do have to be careful because and so do I uh, because they are slightly different and they're usually you know calculated in a different way so incidence is like you know new cases that are being diagnosed but incidence rate is the rate at which people are getting that disease in a given time period so you know 10 people per 100,000 Uh, In in a year's time. So just be aware that the question may be asking for incidence or incidence rate. I don't think you'd have to calculate incidence rate or anything like that. Seems beyond the scope of the syllabus. But just be careful of the wording of questions. If they do ask you for the rate, make sure you're using the rate um, and not just the incidence So specifically with this dot point I like to pick malaria to look at and uh, the World Health Organization have an excellent set of graphs and data on malaria Um, and so what I've done is I've put them together in a worksheet and I'll be uploading that to the uh, Facebook page as well so make sure you check that out. But again, this is hard to teach specifically without going into details on how to interpret data and information. So really this is up to your teachers, but have a look at the worksheet I've uploaded, see if you can answer the questions and you can always feel free to ask me any questions yourself if you'd like to on the Facebook page. All right, so that's it for that dot point. Uh, we're going to move on now to the next one, which is evaluate historical, culturally diverse, and current strategies to predict and control the spread of disease. So this is one dot point that I always sort of really pick at because of the specific use of words uh, throughout. So specifically looking at predict, the the word predict in there does make it a little difficult. So Historical, culturally diverse and current strategies to predict and control the spread of disease. So the way I looked at it is that historically, how did we predict and control disease? Culturally, how do we predict and control disease? And currently, how do we predict and control disease? And then you need to evaluate them. So are they effective? Um, Do they work? So what I've done is I've broken this down into a table and I've broken it down just as I said before, Um, put prediction and control at the top and then I've gone through historical, cultural and current. I always find it difficult to get good examples of predictions because... To predict disease is quite complex, Um, so if you have any good ones, please let me know on the Facebook page, send me a message, and I'd love to add it to the list. But I'm going to go through the ones I have here, and uh, hopefully you guys get something out of it anyway. All right, let's start with looking at how they predicted disease historically, and they, as you can imagine, probably weren't very good at it. The best example I can find of how they used to predict disease was through astrology. So looking at the planets and stars and how they aligned. So I'm just going to read a quick excerpt that was written in 1345 about how they used to more or less suggest that diseases were caused due to the alignment of planets. So here we go. The faculty reported that at 1pm on the 20th of March 1345, there was a conjunction of Saturn, Jupiter and Mars in the house of Aquarius. The conjunction of Saturn and Jupiter gave rise to death and disaster, while the conjunction of Jupiter and Mars disseminated pestilence in the air. Jupiter was assumed to be warm and humid and to draw malignant vapors both from the ground and from water. While Mars was assumed to be hot and dry, and therefore had the capacity to kindle such malignant vapors into infective fire, consequently the rare conjunction together presaged the most terrible epidemic disaster. So you can hear from the language that it's quite descriptive in how these things all work, and you know, it would have been believable at the time they didn't have anything better to go off, So it was very common for them to use these uh, events to describe what was actually happening. Um, But a much better example of a methodology of prediction was that of John Snow. Now, if you don't know who John Snow is, he was really, uh, or he's known as the father of field epidemiology. He was like the first one to start to analyze data and collect information on individuals to see what was causing a certain disease. So specifically, he was looking at a cholera outbreak, and there's plenty of YouTube videos on what he did, so you can go and check that out. But I'll just mention that his uh, technique, his epidemiological technique, um, was able to predict that there's potentially something wrong with one of the water pumps in town. And therefore, he was able to potentially uh, stop that disease from occurring. So that moves into the control category as well. Uh, So his methodology of uh, figuring out where everybody lived who got sick and or died and then uh, putting that on a map to, to plot out which areas were most affected allowed him to see which uh, is the likely cause of this disease. And so that was one good one that I could find that was about predicting the and controlling the spread of disease. Because with that information, they could shut off the pump and therefore less people would get sick. And eventually it was found out. That it was most likely due to uh, those people who lived downriver, where there was uh, uh, dirty nappies and diapers and all sorts of uh, faecal matter going into the water, uh, which is one way in which the cholera was spread. But John Snow is a great example, so do make sure you check that out, and it does fit into the control category as well. So let's now talk about some more historical methods of controlling disease, some less effective than others. And the first one we're going to be looking at is the humours of the body. So a lot of uh, historical information around disease prevention was about humors. So it was believed that we had, you know, four parts of our body that were filled with different liquids. And we call these liquids humors. And this actually relates directly to your humoral immune response as well. So those uh Plasma cells putting out antibodies in the humors, but I'll come back to that. (laughs) Well, we did that already, but we'll come back now to the four humors. So the four humors linked to things like uh, the seasons. So we had blood, which was in spring. Uh, We had phlegm, which was like winter. We had black bile, which was autumn. And there was yellow bile, which is summer. So these four mysterious liquids in the body that all needed to be in balance for a person to be in good health. And there's uh, one technique, so this is going into the control, that they used to use to ensure that those humours were in the correct uh, or were in equilibrium. And that is through bloodletting. And so bloodletting was the process of literally draining someone's blood uh, in order to balance out some of the negative effects that were occurring in the other humours. So I'm just going to read a quick, uh, another excerpt. I thought this one was quite interesting Um, on a soldier that was treated on the battlefield. All right, here we go. One typical course of medical treatment began at the morning of the 13th of July, 1824. A French sergeant was stabbed through the chest while engaged in single combat. Within minutes, he fainted from loss of blood. Arriving at the local hospital, he was immediately bled 20 ounces, which is 570 mils, to prevent inflammation. During the night, he was bled another 24 ounces, 680 mils. Early the next morning the chief surgeon bled the patient another 10 ounces 285 mils. During the next 14 hours he was bled five more times. Medical attendees thus intentionally removed more than half of the patient's normal blood supply. In addition to the initial blood loss which caused the sergeant to faint, bleedings continued over the next several days. By 29th of July the wounds had become inflamed. The physician applied 32 leeches to the most sensitive parts of the wound Over the next three days there were more bleedings and a total of 40 more leeches. The sergeant recovered and was discharged on the 3rd of October. His physician wrote that by the large quantity of blood lost amounting to 170 ounces nearly 11 pints or 4.8 liters besides that drawn by the application of leeches perhaps another two pints 1.1 liters And at the end of all that, the life of the patient was preserved. So you can see from that uh, bit of text that, you know, in some cases, these things were uh, portrayed as being successful. uh, But obviously, there is a number of conditions that would have allowed that to happen. um, And who knows how much truth there is to each of these stories. So that's an example of a control technique historically that would have been not so successful. So in evaluating the effectiveness of it, it would be difficult to suggest that it is successful. We do not use the technique anymore except for very rare cases and conditions um, where it is still done. uh, But again, they have to be very specific in their use. And most likely those techniques were not useful uh, in the past. So let's look at a historical example that is successful to control disease and this fits into the culturally diverse category as well because it kind of crosses many generations so we'll start with ancient china and they are you know the ones that bele- that were believed to have started the technique that is called variolation so variolation is the precursor to vaccination and the way that it used to be done was Quite gross. The technique that was used is that the scabs of individuals that had once been sick and had recovered, but still had wounds, um, those scabs were removed. They were crushed up into a powder, and then they were u- they were they were blown up the nostrils of an individual and then breathed in. Now, what this was doing was indeed uh, attempting to uh, immunize the individual by putting in those fragments of whatever disease it was. And the disease they were treating was smallpox and they didn't really know that in those uh, crushed up scabs were the small viral particles, um, but they were mildly successful. Um, and they found that if they used fresher scabs that the person got too sick and they actually got the disease. But if they used older scabs that it did work uh, in some cases. Now, over time, this technique obviously did change as they went from Nasal insufflation, as it was called, um, to a more modern technique where they made small uh, incisions on an individual's arm and infected them with blood from someone that had recovered. And then that moved into uh, to, to, to vaccination techniques that we know today. Um, and really, it started off when Edward Jenner started to realize that individuals that had cowpox uh, weren't getting smallpox. And therefore, he could start to infect people with a harmless form of a virus that protected them from the, the more dangerous strand. Now, beyond that, another two examples that are very useful are obviously, is the work of Pasteur and Cox. So, um, you know, perfecting that uh, vaccination technique with Pasteur and uh, really looking at the use of pasteurization is effective. And Cox postulates, obviously, to predict the likelihood of a pathogen causing a certain disease. So we won't go through Pasteur and Cox, but they could certainly cover you for that one. All right, now culturally um, a culturally diverse method of predicting disease, I cannot find. I can't find outside of things like prayers and astrology again, which was part of a cultures. Um, there's no real good ones for that. Now, I've already spoken about a culturally diverse technique of variolation, uh, which was used uh, quite a while ago. Um, but another good one that you can use here that crosses over with another dot point is aboriginal bush medicine. So bush medicines have obviously been used for a long time in the Aboriginal culture and some common examples of bush medicines that you may have heard of would be tea tree in tea tree oil um, and eucalyptus oil. And they would use them in a number of different ways, Um, but some common and easy to understand ways is that they would simply rub the uh, leaves on wounds um, or they would uh, heat or boil it in some way or even smoke it and basically breathe in some of the vapour. That would be used to treat a number of different things, but along with colds and flus, um, stopping the, the infections of wounds and things like that. So that's a good culturally diverse methodology to control the spread of disease, and that does cross over, as I said, with the next dot point on uh, Aboriginal bush medicine and uh, preserving those the, basically the knowledge that Aboriginal people have, but we'll talk about that in a minute. Let's now take a look at the current strategies to predict and control disease. And in terms of prediction, there's a number of different ways you can look at this. So, one good example that I've seen would be the use of DNA sequencing. So, to predict the likelihood of an individual getting a disease, you most certainly could use DNA sequencing to analyze their specific DNA and see whether or not they have any. Uh, pre-existing markers or code that might link them to certain conditions so that's one way to predict the likelihood of an individual getting a disease. Another technique as I spoke about before would be epidemiology so having a look at data and analyzing the uh, incidence and prevalence rate we can start to predict the likelihood of individuals getting a disease in a certain population. Now the third example I have is one that is probably overly complex for what we need but it's a good example. At least you could probably give it in an exam and that is the SIR simulations. So obviously as our ability to um, to interpret data gets better, we have computers that can run programs and, and run mathematical modeling of certain uh Using certain data to generate potential outcomes. And so an SIR simulation basically just takes into account people that are susceptible, people that are infectives or those that have the disease and can transmit it, and the number of people that are removed. So SIR, susceptible, infective, and removed. And the removed individuals are basically those that can't transmit the disease from person to person. Um, They may have had it and, and got over it, but they can't transmit it anymore. So that's just an example of a mathematical model that can predict the outcome of a potential disease spreading in a population. Now, when you have a look at the control mechanisms that we have currently, well, this links back to another dot point we've already done. When we look at our current methodologies to control disease, we have vaccinations, public health programs, hygiene practices, quarantine, use of pesticides and genetic engineering. And so I've gone through all of those before and they really hit all of the potential categories you could be asked um, in terms of the current methodologies we use to control the spread of disease. Now when you're evaluating each of these, if you're evaluating the historical ones, obviously depending on what you pick, they're not going to be as effective so you need to talk about why that is. Same with the uh, culturally diverse techniques and the current ones which are going to be uh, working and they are going to be effective, they're the ones you probably want to be discussing and you can discuss in detail. So that brings us to the last dot point in module 7 and that is investigate the contemporary application of Aboriginal protocols in the development of particular medicines and biological materials in Australia and how recognition and protection of indigenous cultural and intellectual property is important. For example, bush medicine and smoke bush in Western Australia. So there is quite a bit to unpack in this dot point and I always get stuck here every year because I don't have a great example. I'm going to give you the one that I use and I'm going to give it my best shot. But if you do have a really great resource for this dot point or a great write-up, I would love to get access to that um, so that I could update this podcast episode. Um, But I'll give it my best shot and we'll see how we go from there. So the first thing we're gonna look at is in the dot point how it says uh, the contemporary application of Aboriginal Protocols. And so a protocol that um, I use when I get to this one is called the Nagoya Protocol. And the Nagoya Protocol, um, N-A-G-O-Y-A, was devised in Japan in 2010 and we signed it in 2012. And basically, it's a framework that respects the value of indigenous knowledge, focusing on how resources are accessed and the fair and equitable sharing of monetary benefits from their use. Now, when we look at uh, Aboriginal bush medicine, as I spoke about before, it's something that has been used for many generations. But Aboriginal people um, don't often write things down, they often tell stories, and they explain things through, um, uh, through, through their voice. And so that does become an issue when trying to uh, recognize individuals that did discover something. Um, And so when we look at some bush medicines, so tea tree oil, for example, and eucalyptus oil, they are now very commonly used across the globe. But it's very rare to see uh, recognition of of where and and how those uh, properties were discovered. And they were things that Aboriginal people have used for a long period of time, and they had been effective. Now, would they have been discovered by individuals without Aboriginal knowledge? Well, it's difficult to say, but... Most likely, it wouldn't have been discovered in the way that it was. And so, the two examples I spoke about, tea tree oil and eucalyptus oil, um, are great examples of bush medicine that are used to treat uh, bacterial infections. They have antimicrobial properties. And so, we see these products used globally now, but there still is no recognition of the contributions of Aboriginal people. And so, the concern here is that the Aboriginal people and their traditional knowledge is really being exploited um, for monetary gain and there's no recognition given Uh, to the individuals and the culture that discovered them. Um, And so there's no real informed consent given and the idea is you're creating that continued dispossession of of community. There is some attempts to basically address the lack of protection uh, using certain regulations, but they're at the moment considered to be relatively ineffective, unfortunately. Now, I don't usually look at both examples here, but I think the smoke bush uh, example is another good one to use and it's quite easy to remember. So the smokebush of Western Australia was traditionally used by Aboriginal Australians for for healing, um, obviously for a long period of time. Uh, In the 1960s, the WA government granted a US National Cancer Institute a license to collect plants. In 1981, uh, basically, they sent smoke bush to the institute uh, for potential cancer-fighting properties. Now, no cancer-fighting properties were found. However, when they were tested again for their, uh, in a search for a cure for HIV and AIDS, they basically found that it did have a substance that destroyed the HIV virus. Now, the problem here is that the, uh, the smoke bush itself was patented, and basically they awarded the rights to the pharmaceutical company in Victoria to develop the patent. Um, and so basically they were allowed to start making an anti-AIDS drug. Now, there was no recognition or acknowledgement or financial or otherwise for the role of Indigenous people in their discovery of the healing properties of smoke bush. And so the, the WA legislation disregards any potential intellectual property rights that Indigenous people have on their lands. Now, the problem is that they basically have the rights now to that plant, to the entire species of flora, preventing anyone from using the species for any other purpose without the consent of the company. So a pretty significant impact that a company can have um, without recognizing the uh, Aboriginal culture that had a contribution to the discovery of the plant. All right. Well, I hope once again, that was helpful, guys. Um, That is the end of module seven. And as always, make sure you check out STEM Reactor at stemreactor.com.au if you need any biotechnology stuff at school. Um, Also, if you'd like to help support the show, you can head on over to buymeacoffee.com slash hscbiologypod and you can buy me a coffee that will keep me going through module eight.